Welcome to the Creative South Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. This week, I'm talking with artist, designer, and Creative South alumnus, Lydia Kikis. Lydia and I chat about sticking with graphic design after being rejected twice from her college program, why she went back for her master's degree after five years of working professionally, how we can use our talents as designers for good and to promote change, how she got into block printing, and what it's done to make her work better, all right after this. It's no secret that I love Jack Prince. They're a longtime sponsor of the podcast and Creative South. Plus, they do great work. Whether they're making our pop-up displays and tablecloths or printing notebooks, Jack Prince is always there when we need them. This year, they are printing new Creative South t-shirts for me and the podcast stickers. They have a coupon code on the back that gives you a great discount on all of their products, just in time for Creative South. Speaking of stickers, Jack Prince will print any kind, shape, size, or stock, including full-color stickers with full-color liner prints, for you to use as product labels, promotions, bumper stickers, hang tags, business cards, and more. Right now, you can get 500 3x3-inch die-cut stickers, starting at $149. Plus, Jack Prince is giving Creative South Podcast listeners 15% off all orders, over $25, when you use promo code SOUTH15OFF at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. If you like the Creative South podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every dollar helps us cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. With options starting at just $1 per month, you can help support the podcast and even wind up with some cool Creative South podcast swag. When you become a Creative South patron, you'll get access to exciting Creative South news before anyone else. A shout out on the podcast thanking you for your support. Creative South Podcast stickers and t-shirts. So, please help support the podcast by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash creative south. Lydia, thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Jason. I'm... Uh... I'm, I'm really excited to have you on and uh, get a chance to officially talk with you on the microphone. That's right. It's about time, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I tried <laughs> to I tried to convince you to do it a couple of years ago at Weapons of Mass Creation, and you weren't having yeah. it. I'm shy. What can I say? <laughs> I have never known you to be shy. <laughs> <laughs> it's selective, you know. Oh, okay. So, Take it or leave it. <laughs> so, so having a microphone sh- shoved in your face uh, ter- makes you shy. It's um, it's a little imposing. You know, I'm looking at you now. You look like a robot from some science fiction movie or something. Oh, with yeah. my nice big boom arm microphone yeah. in front of me. Yeah, and... it's intimidating. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, you already know me. So just remember, it's just a conversation. Right. And we're just chatting. So that'll make it easier. Okay. So why don't we start at the uh, beginning? Where'd you grow up? So I am from Kernersville, North Carolina which is a little suburb um, around the Winston-Salem, Greensboro, High Point area of North okay. Carolina. Um, it's a great place to grow up, easy to get to all the places, but it's it's definitely a small town. It's a nice place to be from, but I'm, I'm glad I'm in the big city now. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. When you were growing up, what type of kid were you? What type of kid was I? Um, I really liked to be the center of attention mm-hmm. when I was a kid, and uh it's a bummer. They tell me, well, for starters, my first memory in my whole life 
is when I was two and a half and we were going to the hospital to pick up my brother from the hospital when Mm. he was born. So I have zero memories of being the only child and actually being like the center of attention. Um, (laughs) so that's, that's a sad fact that I have no memory of that, but I don't uh, either. So (laughs) yeah, I was, I was a little drama queen. I like to put on little shows for my family. I loved like, um, you know, the parent trap, the mm-hmm. first parent trap, the real parent trap with Haley Mills and Haley Mills, uh-huh. that scene where they do that little show for their parents in the, in the patio. I mm-hmm. wanted to recreate that so bad. And there were so many times when me and my little girlfriends would try to come up <laughs> with places we could turn into stages and, you know, we would dress up like Disney princesses and just, yeah, that was, that was my childhood drawing pictures and, uh, Disney. Gotcha. <laughs> Yeah. So when you got to like high school level, were you still big into art at that point? Were you, what, what, what were you into? I was, yeah, it was, I was, I was into everything in high school. I was, I was that student that felt like the more things that were present on my, um, resume on my college application, the better my chances would be to get into anywhere I wanted to. And so I did, Oh my gosh. I did junior civitans. I did, um, madrigals. I was in a singing group. Mm -hmm. I was on yearbook staff for three years. Um, I had no free time. I was so busy, but I loved it. I love, I love having a cramped schedule. I love having a lot of responsibilities. So, um, the funny thing is all through high school, I was only able to take an art class my freshman year. Mm -hmm. And then, and then after that, the art class always conflicted in some way with, something, some other commitment that I already had. Mm -hmm. So, um, I didn't actually get to do a lot of fine art in high school, but it was on the yearbook staff, which kind of was my first dabbling into graphic design. So gotcha. I joke that my spreads in the yearbook are my earliest and ugliest portfolio entries because they are, oh my gosh, (laughs) they're very, very bad. (laughs) Looking back, and I can remember being so proud of them at the time, and then I sure. look back at it, and I'm like, what was I doing here? I'm shocked that I actually got into a design school anywhere. But <laughs> Well, well let, let's talk about that. So when you, when you get out of high school, where do you end up going? What do you end up doing? Yeah, so that was, that was a kind of dramatic story. Um, when I was in high school, I learned about graphic design. I had a cousin that I adored, still adore, but Mm -hmm. she was big into, she was at Appalachian state and she was doing, um, interior design. And, uh, I just adored her and I would follow her around and ask her for advice. And she said, it sounds like you'd really be good at graphic design. I said, I don't know what that is. So I look into it and I'm like, yeah, that sounds like the kind of thing I would be into. So I look Mm -hmm. around and I say, okay, well, what's the best place to do that in state? You know, want to keep it cheap, stay in state. And, um, and I find North Carolina state Mm -hmm. and, um, I was, I was raised a Tar Heel girl. I don't, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you know that there's kind of a big school down here called UNC and they're never heard of it, but especially um, around basketball season. Right. Yeah. They're just, you know, they're, they are what they are. But, um, so I thought, well, I don't want to go to NC state. I'm a, I'm a Carolina girl. I want to go to Carolina. Can't be Wolfpack. Yeah. And, um, so I remember so clearly getting my first packet from UNC with all of their um, programs listed mm-hmm. and graphic design wasn't on it. 
And I remember saying, well, this is probably just the abridged list. This can't be, mm-hmm. this isn't everything they offer. There's specialty classes somewhere that aren't listed on this, but no, they, there was not a graphic design program there. Um, there is now and they do great work, but at the time it, it really wasn't an option. So that was the first heartbreak was finding out that the school that I'd always imagined going to did not offer what I wanted. <laughs> so then I had to adjust the idea to the idea of being a Wolfpack girl. And, um, and so it's really competitive. The design program at NC state, they sure. get tons and tons of applicants and they are not able to accept that like, you know, 30 students per class every mm-hmm. year, well per major per year. Um, but I was so sure that I was good at this and that I was going to sail right through because I'd never had any trouble with anything academic, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and I didn't get in and I was devastated. I was like, this was my, this was what I was going to do. This is the best school around for this. And they don't want me. So that was kind of the first, like, man, this, <laughs> this is going to be harder than I thought it was kind of realization. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then I thought, okay, well, there's other schools around here. I can do this or I can stick it out and try to keep going to state. So I, uh, I called them and I said, look, I want to get into this program, but I didn't get in this year. How does this work? And I said, well, you can still come and do the first year college. And that means that you can come and take all of your general education stuff. And then you can reapply again in the spring to get in next year. So this would add an extra whole year to my college. And I thought, okay, well, we'll try that. So uh, my incredibly patient parents were like, sure, we'll just pay for a fifth year of school. That would be fine. <laughs> and <laughs> at least they said it was fine at the time. At the time. And um, <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so I did that and I took a lot of, um, you know, I took biology and English and math and all the stuff, but, but nothing that was really um, graphic design based. Sure. But uh, there was one studio that was open to non-design students and it was a real studio. It was three hours long, twice a week. It was a taste of what you'd actually get if you mm-hmm. got into design school. And again, it was really competitive because everybody that didn't get in wanted to be that, that class. Yeah. Try to get in. And I got in that class and I was so grateful that I got to that class because I met my best friend in that class. Um, I, I got to meet a lot of teachers that became mentors later. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, so I did that for a year and then spring rolled around and I applied again and I got rejected again. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so that what, do you, was, what do you do at that point? Cause yeah, um, that was kind of crisis mode. Okay. Um, I've kind of dug in here. What do I do? Do I, do I wait again for a third time? Um, do I transfer to like UNC Charlotte or Appalachian, which both would have been good alternates at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am stubborn and, uh, <laughs> I stuck it out again. So I was a sophomore in the quote first year college. And, um, so I applied again the second year and, uh, the second year I got in. And I, I think it's because for starters, they were tired of seeing my name on the application. Um, but also that year was the first year we did interviews instead of just dropping off a portfolio. Sure. Um, and I think it, it helped me a lot to be able to talk through my process and to explain kind of why I wanted to be in design school and how I wanted to be impactful through design. And I think that spoke to them. And, um, 
So third time I got in. So third time's I, a charm. I started my major my junior year. Okay. No. Yeah, my junior year. Mm-hmm. So um <laughs> so it was a long road to get there, but it 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 actually ended up working out fine because even though I was six years just for undergrad, mm-hmm. um I got to study abroad for a whole semester because I didn't, you know, I had time in my schedule to do that. I met my husband my fifth year. So, you know, things worked out the way they should have. It just took a little longer than, than it should. Gotcha. As, as you're going through school, once you finally get in, are you focusing on anything specific in graphic design or, you know, are, are you just kind of generalizing? Um, I think like most design students in the, mid 2000s, we all wanted to, uh, do print design Mm -hmm. and beer, beer labels. Mm -hmm. I still want to do beer labels just to clarify. Everyone does. But the sad truth that I know now that I've had, I've had sadly to tell a lot of, um, students that are still just devoted to print. Um, look, the best way to, to do branding for a beer company is to start a beer company because, you know, convincing someone to change their branding or, you know, latching yourself to a brand that clearly already has a designer is doing well. I mean, those are your only options. So, um, I loved print. I remember saying, quote, I never want to design websites. <laughs> what are you doing? Spoiler, spoiler alert. Uh, that also did not go that way, but, um, I've made a lot of statements like that in my career where I make very bold, um, ultimatums about my future that mm-hmm. end up being exact predictors of what I end up doing. So <laughs> it's generally the way uh, it works. Uh, that was the first of many. <laughs> so That's why I keep saying I never want to win the lottery. Yeah, that would suck. Be horrible. <laughs> <Who wants> that? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so you're, you're, fo- you're trying to focus on print because you don't want to do web work. Yeah. Um, what do, what do you do after college? What do I do after college? Good question, Jason. So um, I worked at a web shop (laughs) in Uh Durham. Um, So I think one of my misconceptions about designing for the web was that you would have to be able to code. Mm -hmm. And then and now I still find code incredibly um, terrifying. Um, I, I feel like that's a whole language that is difficult to learn that I just lack, I lack the visual and spatial understanding to think that way. And I admire the hell out of people who can, Mm -hmm. especially people who can code and design. That's amazing. Um, but it's something that I've tried to do several times and it just has never clicked for me. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that I shied away from web was because I thought I would either have to learn that skill and that I wouldn't like it and I would resent it Mm -hmm. or, you know, no one would hire me because I didn't know how to do that. So I'm incredibly grateful for, for that first job that I was taken on despite the fact that I didn't have hardly any web work in my portfolio. Um, but that first boss just, um, you know, trusted that, okay, well she knows these design principles and she's got a great sense of color and typography and, and why can't that translate to the web? And so I learned a ton about web, um, in the time that I was there and I never had to learn code. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But I ended up working very closely with, again, one of my dearest friends now, Elisa, who um, was an incredibly patient developer because she would explain things to me in a way that I would understand. Mm -hmm. She would point out problems to me in a way that I could understand. And so we were, we were very collaborative at that first place because, um, you know, I could see where she was coming from and she could see where I was coming from. So I think we taught a ton to each other in that job, which was great. Gotcha. So, so after you're there for a while, cause I know you went back and got your master's, when, how, when did that come about in kind of your phase of career? Yeah. So after I had been at my first job for about five years, mm-hmm. um, I just had gotten to this place where my work had sort of stagnated. I wasn't learning anything new. I wasn't challenging myself and I had, I couldn't really grow anymore in that position. And I just felt like something needed to change. And mm-hmm. so I thought a lot about, well, do I, do I get a new position somewhere? I feel like maybe I'm ready to be a creative director, but you know, maybe, maybe I need to sharp, resharpen some skills here. Maybe I need to learn some leadership skills that I don't have. Um, and so I thought, okay, maybe grad school. And, um, (laughs) in many ways, I think (laughs) graduate school was a really expensive sort of quarter life crisis. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of people treat it like that. Um, but it also was a very necessary pause button Mm -hmm. in my life where I was able to kind of evaluate the work that I had been doing and think about, you know, what, what about that work wasn't working for me? Um, and, and try to decide what I would be on the other side. And I had no idea when I started graduate school, I knew that, um, you know, I'd, I'd probably be more qualified to be in some sort of leadership position at another firm mm-hmm. or I could teach. I still can if I want to. I can teach up to the college level. Um, and I did a lot of teaching when I was in graduate school, which I, I'm convinced is too much for me. <laughs> I, admire, <laughs> I admire all my teachers so much, but they they are such hard workers and they um they amaze me all the things that they can keep in the air and still be incredible role models and, um, and mentors for their students. But, um, yeah, it gave me time to kind of figure stuff out and I'm, I'm grateful for that time. I'm going to be paying for that time for another six to seven years, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. And it, it was just the right time for me to kind of reevaluate my career. Gotcha. When, when you, when you wrap up, grad school, what do you end up doing? Um, and, and I asked this kind of knowing the answer cause I was talking to you at this time and yeah. all that. So, you know, how, yeah. l- let me rephrase that question. How did you deal with these struggles of finding a job again when you wrapped up grad school? Good question. Great question. Um, so when I finished graduate school, I was I wasn't, again, I still was not quite sure what I wanted to do. I knew that the web work that I had been doing, um, had kind of burned me out. Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't super enthusiastic about getting back into a position like that. Um, but I also wasn't quite sure what else I would want to do. Mm -hmm. Um, again, teaching could have been a thing, but that would have meant probably moving across country somewhere. And around this time I had just become 
deeply, deeply ingrained in the, um, in the local design community and they're my family now. And I can't imagine moving away from Raleigh and them. And, um, so I wanted to stay here and I wanted to, um, find a way to use these new skills that I got. Mm. So, uh, my husband and I talked about it and we sort of decided, you know, take your time getting a new job, you know, look around, make sure that you're using your time wisely. Um, but, don't make it a need to start the job the Monday after graduation kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really, really grateful for Matt's support on that to kind of give me freedom to find the right thing. Um, so that summer, 2016, summer of 2016, mm-hmm. I was spending my time hand lettering and illustrating and kind of doing whatever I wanted during the day and looking for jobs here and there. Um, I signed up with a talent agency that does just design, um, placement. Mm -hmm. And, um, the, (laughs) the first job they offered me was, I remember they, they listened to me talk for like 30 minutes about what the perfect job for me would be. And then they said, okay, great. Well, we have a position for you. It's in video editing. And I'm like, did you just put me on mute? for half an hour that video editing that's I'm not even capable of doing that so yeah, the recruiters don't really look for jobs for you they look for what they have open and then yeah. try to fit you into it yeah so that that was a sort of negative first experience with the recruitment um so I turned that down of course and then mm. a few weeks went by and I got a call from that same recruiter saying hey there's a local company here in Raleigh they have um they have a short-term project that they need some help on. It's web work. It's well within your wheelhouse. You want to take it on? I said, sure. I thought, you know, this isn't a job. This is a short-term thing. I can meet some people, see how I feel about web. I was worried about working on web again after two years. Two years is an eternity in web design world, you know, yeah. with not only just the the visual design, but the you know the coding and the the technology advancement. So I was kind of freaked out about that, but I thought, you know, I can do this. This is fine. So, um, so I came out and I, I worked, um, mostly remotely for a couple of weeks with, uh, my creative director, Tony, and, um, they liked the work I did and they said, would you like to do another short-term contract in a couple of weeks? And I'm like, I'm on to you. I know this is a job interview. <laughs> um, but I did, and I, I got to work with a couple more people at that firm. So I'm slowly mm-hmm. starting to learn who everybody is. And um, and at the end of the second stint, they offered me a full-time job. And I said, um, no, thank you, <laughs> 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 which felt very strange and sure. like a really stupid thing to do at that point in my life. But I said, you know, look, I am. Um, I don't know much about this company yet. I've only worked with a couple of the people here and, um, this it's the same kind of work that burned me out before. So I'm, I'm not sure this is going to be a good fit. So, um, I've enjoyed working here and I like the pace of the work that I've been doing. So could I be part-time for a little while while I kind of get to know the company, get to know the culture mm-hmm. and all that. And, uh, they were incredibly flexible and, actually let me do that for about two months. And, um, by then I was totally sold. I said, this is an incredible company. It's incredible people. They do worthwhile work. And, um, I can't think of a place 
that would be better to do the kind of work that I'm doing. And it totally fell on my lap. So, um, so yeah, I started, uh, full-time January 1st of 2017 and Mm -hmm. I've been full-time there ever since. Um, this is at vision point marketing in Raleigh. Um, so I do, uh, integrated marketing and web design for higher education. So I get to work with a lot of colleges, universities, and community colleges across the country. Um, I get to travel some, which is new for me. I've never really did that at my first job. Sure. Um, it's great. It's, it's a great position. It's great people. They're super supportive of AIGA and professional development. And um, I'm very grateful to be where I am. Gotcha. Well, let, let's back up a little bit and talk about some projects that you've worked on. Because I want to, I, I remember when I was sending stuff out to get a little more information of how, you know, to kind of frame things, you mentioned something about the National Book Festival in D.C. Yeah. Tell me yeah. about that. That was an incredible experience. Um, so in the summer of 2012, um, or spring of 2012, I suppose, we this is at my first job. So before Mm -hmm. graduate school, I was, um, we were asked to do all of the branding and signage and wayfinding for the national book festival in DC, which is an annual event, um, that they have on the national mall. And, um, they put, put up all these big tents and they have authors come and do readings from their books. They have signings, they have a big book fair. Um, it's, it's a huge event. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it took a lot of design, (laughs) but, um, I got to do a lot of that on my own, which was a lot of fun. And I was given beautiful artwork to work with. So the way that they do that every year is that they, um, they commission a poster for the book fair Mm -hmm. that, um, they go to usually a, a children's book illustrator, some kind of illustrator. And this year they had, um, Rafael Lopez, which does really he does incredibly bright, vibrant, um, it's kind of a gouache look. It's definitely got some texture to it. And, uh, it was all about animals. And so we were given this poster, this flat poster <laughs> with no bleed, mm-hmm. um, and said, okay, this is what you have to work with. I mean, it was high red, high res, excuse me, thank goodness. But, um, so I had a poster of, uh, and you can Google this and you can see exactly what it looks like if you look for the <laughs> 2012 National Book Festival poster. Um, it was bright pink and it had, there's three little kids sitting cross-legged at the bottom reading books. Mm-hmm. And then there's all these animals that kind of are kind of peeking over their shoulders. So it's like a, it's very Lion King looking, like kind of the, the style of it. So you get all these jungle animals. And so we had to take all those animals and put them on all these different signs and kind of use that as the artwork that would inspire everything there. And, um, it was really great work for me in Photoshop because I would have to do things like, uh, you know, this giraffe's neck needs to be longer, (laughs) but there's, there's no more giraffe. So I need to kind of find a way to replicate the, how, how Raphael was able to do that. Mm -hmm you know, clone tool was my friend. Yeah, I was about to say. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I did so much stuff like that. We, oh, the kids. Yeah. They weren't cross-legged. They were cut off 
like at the waist. And so we had to use their arms to make legs and feet of them so that we could show them sitting. You know, so just imagine if you've got a photo of someone cropped at the waist and you need to add legs, that's kind of how that whole project went. But, um, despite the sort of artistic difficulties and getting the artwork actually to work, I got to make over 450 unique pieces of signage, um, got a, a like a label for a water bottle and bags and a map and this 20 foot tall thing that they called the rocket tower, which crashed my computer every time I opened it. I can imagine. <laughs> oh my gosh. That file was four gigs. And it would, it was one of those things where it'd be like, move something, wait for it to raster for 20 minutes, go take a walk, whatever, come back. And then you could start on the next thing. It was, it was insane. Yeah. Um, but that was a really fun project. I had a lot of autonomy because I was working directly with a creative director who was running the project from DC. Um, and then I got to go see it. I got to go up to DC and actually see all this work that had taken me months and months, um, on the national mall, which was really, really cool. Mm. And, uh, I remember we took, we took the Metro that actually comes up in the middle of the national mall. So it wasn't like I could see it for blocks and blocks away. And all of a sudden it was there. I just came up out of the ground and then boom, it's like all my work (laughs) in every direction. It was, it was really incredible. And it felt like a really cool secret to have to like walk around this festival and see all these people interacting with my work and know, Hey, you don't know this, but I did that for you. (laughs) How many people did you accost on the street and tell them? I did not. I kept it to myself. I, I was probably a big nerd. I was, you know, telling my husband (laughs) stories about, you know, why I did this. And yeah, but it's one of those projects, unfortunately, that I'm very, very proud of, but that I I can't really put it on my website for a lot of reasons. So, um, I love talking about it. I love looking at the imagery, but I, I can't really own any of that work because of course it's original work by, um, by Rafael Lopez. And we don't want anyone to think that I made that beautiful work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just cut it up and made it into size. Gotcha. <laughs> so a lot of when, when you're designing that many pieces at that large of scale, um, how do you maintain a level of uniformity yet make them all unique? That, it, that was the, the crux of the whole project. Um, we had some color coding. Mm-hmm. So um, if it was like a, a children's, I think it, if it was a children's event, it was pink. And if it was an adult event, it was purple. Um, we did a lot of trying to reuse a lot of the same stuff because you didn't want to reinvent the wheel, mm-hmm. of course. Um, but spreadsheets, there was a lot of spreadsheets, <laughs> uh, a lot of checklists. I have some of the craziest looking checklists ever from that time where I had, you know, four or five different highlighters that were all supposed to mean different things. And it just looked like nonsense to anyone else. But I was like, no, I have to wait until I get the orange marked off and then I can do the blue and then I'll have time for the pink. And it's like, okay, (laughs) you're losing, you're losing your mind list maker. But, uh, yeah, that was tough. (laughs) And at this time, did anyone try to put you on medicine for like OCD just to tame the lists? No, no one can do that. I'm I'm a list maker. I'll always be a list maker. <laughs> Helps me keep everything in line. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, you you get all this stuff. You go see it, and and moving forward, you've you've had the opportunity to do some other 
interesting projects. Um, the, when you were in grad school, I think you worked on something that was revolving around the alphabet, if I remember correctly. Sort of. The alphabet was the sort vehicle. Of. So, um, yeah, so in graduate school, your your last your second year, you're supposed to do a thesis project, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, requires a, a paper, an extensive paper. And um, I was determined to do something that reflected the things that I cared about and sort of how I wanted to position myself as, you know, reentering the job market and all that. And, mm-hmm. and I was obsessed with typography and I was obsessed with um, technology and how technology can sort of inform um, artistic decisions that you make with any medium really. But I chose typography as sort of the, the medium. But um, so <laughs> I had this, I had this idea that I was going to do a hundred day project, but I didn't really, first of all, I didn't really have a hundred days. Like it looked like I had a hundred days on the calendar, but I really didn't. Sure. But I did it anyway, you know? Um, but what I essentially did was I, I wanted to see how you could combine analog kind of old school methods of making and digital sort of new age methods of making and what those things would do when they intersected. So, um, I made a morphology chart and that's essentially like a multiplication table. If you can picture like one through 10 on the left and one through 10 on the top. Mm-hmm. So you would be able to match everything up. So I had 10, 10 methods of handmaking on, on one side and then 10 methods of digital making on one side. And then I would just match them up and, I would add this thing plus this thing to make a letter. And, and that was, that was pretty much it. And so, um, things like on the, on the, on the, uh, analog end, there would be letterpress, sure. you know, because while that is a machine, it's a machine that's kind of old school and has been around for many hundreds of years and you put a lot of muscle into it. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, that was sort of my analog an example of an analog, but then, uh, an example of digital. And I was really excited about this one was, um, 3d printing. I actually got to do a lot of 3d printing during Mm -hmm. that year. And so I thought, okay, how can I combine these two things? So I borrowed a, um, a letterpress block from the studio at NC state to take some precise measurements of it. And then I actually 3d printed one. So I 3d printed out of, you know, it's hard plastic when it, when it dries, um, a letterpress block. And then I thought, okay, can I actually letterpress with this without destroying it? Because, you know, it's a big heavy machine and it's used to pushing on metal and I'm giving it (laughs) plastic, hollow plastic. Um, but my friend Scott helped me set it up and make sure I didn't destroy anything. Um, and, and the results were interesting because it worked and it didn't break, but the print that you get has the little squiggles on the surface like you would get from the extruder. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've ever done any uh, 3d printing, but it's essentially, I mean, if you picture like a, um, a glue gun Mm -hmm. that's spitting out, you know, this, this liquid stuff that'll harden it, it has to do it like in rows. And so it just zigzags back and forth. So it's very difficult without sanding or anything like that to get like a smooth surface, you're always going to have like a little bit of that 
bumpy texture. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, oh man, that sucks. That means it's going to show up in my print. And I thought, okay, that's the whole point of this. Like, <laughs> that's where you're getting that here, where you're saying what happens when you combine these two things. Well, so, when, you, when you ran into that, was were you hitting that roadblock of, you know, if it's digital, you think it's precise and it's perfect and it's pristine and it doesn't have texture or weight or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's exactly what I was trying to get at is the idea of how can, um, how can digital tools either bring up or kind of bring down the quality of handmaking and, and vice versa and how can unexpected things happen when you bring them together. So, um, I can't even begin to tell you, uh, any of the other examples. It's been ages. There's one of them sitting across my living room right now because it's like six feet wide and I don't know what to do with it. Um, (laughs) it's a giant letter W if you want it, but, um, (laughs) yeah. So I put a lot of energy into just doing these studies and photographing these studies and then I kind of panicked because it's like, oh, no, I, I need to write a paper about this now. I need to figure out what it is I'm trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it, what it really became was a study of materiality. So what does it mean to make something out of, you know, 3D printing? What does it mean to letterpress something? What not beyond just the mechanics and the capabilities of it? What are the characteristics of it? What are the the historical significances of it. Um, and that's when I really started coming up with cool stuff because I wasn't thinking, how do I literally smash these two things together? I was thinking, okay, how could I use this thing in a way that might not be the way it was meant to be used, but still kind of speaks to its essence. So yeah. <laughs> you so, can see. <laughs> so had you gone through like all of the processes of, uh, would that be processes or processes? Processes. Yeah, processes of doing a hand-done version, doing a digital version, and and created all of that stuff before you even began writing the thesis and kind of... I started the paper when I still had about 30 to go. Um, so you and- were most of the way through it before you really... yeah. But I kind of had to do it that way, first of all, because I didn't really have 100 days. Um, I had to do it more in about 75. Um, But also, I just couldn't wait till the end to kind of figure out what all this meant and what I was learning from it. I needed to kind of do that while I was going. So um, I sort of grouped them into studies that were teaching me things about some of the patterns that were coming out of these things. Um, I'm trying to think it has not been long enough that I should be forgetting (laughs) this, but, um, you know, what did this teach me about, um, conceptuality? What about, um, physicality? Is there Mm -hmm. such a thing as conceptual physicality? And it it got silly, you know, kind of the, the terms I was coming up with, but, um, I came up with some patterns that I was seeing and some, some sort of guidelines for if you're doing material study, questions to ask of your material, mm-hmm. um, different ways of thinking it. So sort of a blueprint if someone else wanted to do this kind of work, what, how, and, and a lot of it at that point was, okay, what did I do wrong? Um, what would I have done differently now that I've kind of gotten halfway into it? 
what would I have done differently? So for example, I had digital, the digital version of sewing, which would be sewing machine. Okay. But I also had embroidery. So I had hand embroidery, hand sewing, embroidery, and sewing machine. Um, and I also had like needle crafts was one of them. There ended up being a ton that were sewn is the point that I'm making. So there's like a whole row that looked very, very similar. And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, okay, I could have, I could have worked a little harder to come up with some. Could have stretched my imagination a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I probably, if I were to do it again, probably would have only done five, maybe five different categories for, for digital and analog and try to make them as different as possible instead of having some that were kind of like, all right, I guess technically you could categorize that as something different just so that you have your magic number 100. Um, I mean, you talked about the, <laughs> the sort of OCD thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it bothered me so much that there are 26 letters in the alphabet. And so there weren't an even number of all the letters in the study. <laughs> that bothered me a lot. Um, but, I was curious about that. <laughs> yeah. I like things to be precise. I like things to be even and work out. And that, that bugs me. I was like, what if I did 102? It's like, no, <laughs> you can't just let it go. Even values divisible yep. or divisible by five. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, and, and we're kind of bouncing around, but I'm going to try to wrap this all up together in a minute, but I'm, I'm really curious about something you did last year, which was the Build Hope Not Walls collaboration. How did that come about? First of all, tell me a bit more about the project and then tell me how it came about. Yeah, so um, Build Hope Not Walls was a project that was created by Nick Ramos, who is in Texas. Mm -hmm. And I became aware of the project through my boss, Tony, who they were college roommates, I believe. Mm -hmm. And um, he told me about the project and he and he and Tony and I had talked a bit of politics uh, in my first year. So he knew where I was, where I stood on a lot of the things that were going on at the time. And, and he said, look, my friend Dan and Nick is doing this art project that's meant to sort of be an, an artistic defiant expression against the sort of divisive language that um, the political climate is now talking about, you know, immigrants get back from where you came from and mm-hmm. America first and all that garbage and, um, and so Nick was doing this project where he was asking, um, 200 artists to create a brick and it just needed to be brick shaped and you could decorate it however you wanted to. But the idea was the, I was to spread hope and not hate and not mm-hmm. division. Um, and so Tony introduced me to Nick and, um, and so we, we, uh, spoke over email and, and I was, I was so thrilled to have some kind of outlet for the frustration that I was feeling and for the just outrage I was feeling at the way normal everyday people were being treated like <laughs> trash because, because of an imaginary line that apparently matters in some mm-hmm. way. But, um, so he invited me to participate and I did, and I loved it. And, um, I knew that I wanted to do something typography based. So, um, uh, I wanted to do mine on wood because Mm -hmm. I 
thought it was going to be difficult to paint typography on brick because it's so porous and I thought it would be difficult to get like fine detail. Sure. I had, I had the hardest time finding a brick size piece of wood because it's not a two by four and it's not a two by two and I don't have like a planer or any of the tools that you would need to make it the right size. So half the battle for me was just finding a damn piece of wood. Um, but my cousin Bud randomly found a piece of, uh, a piece of cedar in his house and cut it down for me in like 30 minutes and just shot me an Instagram, like a, he shot me a Facebook message. He's like, here you go. And I'm like, are you serious? I've been trying to do this for like a month. Um, but I, uh, I wanted it to be type based. And so I thought, how can I do that and, and have this sort of unity message? And so I had, um, six languages translated the word hope. Mm-hmm. And, um, I picked, six of the most commonly spoken languages in the United States. Um, and I actually had friends that natively spoke all those languages that translated them for me because you cannot always trust Google translate. Um, <laughs> what? Context, context is everything. And I didn't want to do something stupid on this. Um, but that was really wonderful to, to be able to reach out to some folks and get them to participate too, by giving me the word that I should put on there. Um, so that was, that was my brick. And so, um, Nick had all these sent to him in Texas. A lot of them were from folks in Texas, but artists all over the country sent in these bricks. And then they had a, um, an exhibition at a, at a gallery down there where they showed all the bricks off and talked about the project and then they auctioned them off. Um, and all the proceeds went to, um, various, uh, local, um, charities that do good work for refugees. Mm-hmm. And so it was really cool to be part of it. And then sort of full circle, um, my AIGA chapter in Raleigh held a one day conference several weeks ago here in Raleigh, um, mm-hmm. called thrive. And we wanted to bring in somebody to talk to, um, talk to our community about design impact and how you can do really powerful things with design. And I immediately thought of Nick and I said, I gotta, I want him to come and talk about this project. And he did. And it was, it was wonderful to hear more about why he did it and to hear sort of his personal story of being an immigrant in the United States and what that journey has been like for him. And, um, it was wonderful. So it was, it was great not only to get to know him virtually, but then to get to bring him here and get to know him as a friend and to find out more about that project, which just made me feel so much prouder to have been a part of it, seeing kind of what it became and, um, and all the good that it was able to do. So it was a, it was a really cool thing to be a part of. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm, I'm curious because especially with the political climate that we are in today and all a lot, well, two of your projects technically one of them definitely does and then the book the national book festival in a way with the way the state of education and things like that are going you know touch on the political mm-hmm. um you know how has how is what's going on now changed the way that you're looking at design when it comes to personal projects oh my goodness um that's a great question. And I told you I was going to try to tie it up somehow. All right. Yeah. <laughs> just, just 
just go there. Just go right there, Jason. It's fine. <laughs> um, I think that for better or worse, um, every individual now has a platform and mm-hmm. um, a message that they can get out if they want to. If they know the right buttons to push and they know the right hashtags to insert and they know the right people to tag, then anything can go viral. Anything can get an equally positive and negative response from people that feel strongly in different ways. And I think that as designers, we have the power to use that for good or evil. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I, I remember being so impressed with the design of president Obama's campaign Mm -hmm. and thinking this is okay. So I'm a, I'm an adult practicing designer now. So am I just noticing this because I'm a voting age and this is, you know, the world that I'm a part of now or did political campaigns for decades have just really well thought out, beautiful, creative. And, um, and I don't think it's the second, I think, (laughs) Think, I'm trying to think of any that just Yeah. I mean it's one thing to have hands. a it's one thing to have a catchy slogan, sure. but it's another thing to have an iconic poster that you still have in people's homes, you know, a decade after that president took office. And not, not a lot of Barry Goldwater posters hanging out there still. <laughs> Probably not. But um I remember being very affected by that and, and, you know, having, having heard Ashley Axios speak, who, who was a creative director at the white house and just seeing like, well, that's, that's a real person that got to design really impactful things for the whole country. Um, it is incredible to think what you could do if you, if you sort of put it in the right, in the right direction. And I think Nick's project is an example of that where, you can take a personal frustration that you have and and find a way to amplify it and turn it instead of instead of making it a message of um, you know hate and conflict, keeping it hopeful. Mm-hmm. You know, Nick was very careful to not to not make it about attacking the other side or attacking anybody's beliefs, but just saying, you know, let's let's unify, let's have hope, let's support each other, uh, just keeping it super positive. Um, and I think that that resonated really well. And that's, that's the way you have to do it. I think you can't, you can't point fingers. And I know I'm, I'm guilty of pointing fingers, but so I think I. That, <laughs> that, yeah, we've had some political conversations online, boy, I know, <laughs> but, um, you know, you have to look at what folks have in common and see, where you can agree. And, and I think design is a really great place to put that because you can, you can present things in a way that are unexpected and, and maybe touch an audience that you might not, you might not be able to talk to. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think we, again, we are powerful and we need to use that power for good and not evil. Yeah. When, you touched on how do you keep from being negative, especially when I'm I'm both sides of it. When you look at the news, there is such a negative bias and, and and, I mean, they're news stations. That's how they make their money is by riling up either side, you know, and, and, and getting that 
thing. How do you overcome that negativity and share that hope and that, that positive attitude when there is so much of the other side out there? I, I still struggle with that. You know, I think we, we're all in vacuums to a certain degree where we are in an echo chamber where we only encounter opinions that agree with our own. And mm-hmm. I think that that is making it worse in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't attempted to do much through my work. I would say through, through any of my you know side projects. Um, but I'd like to, and, and it would need to be something that is supportive mm-hmm. and, and not, you know, of course not derogatory or attacking in any way of, of something else, but saying, this is what I am for. Like, I'm not against this other thing, but I am supportive of, of, um, of another thing. So, you know, I'm seeing all these high schoolers, high schoolers on the cover of time magazine. That's incredible. That's just incredible that, that anybody can do that. And, um, I don't know. I might have to come up with something that I can sort of <laughs> contribute to the conversation. <laughs> I, I've been having the same feeling that I, I think my struggle with that is I feel so overwhelmed by it. I don't know where to begin and I don't know. I don't know how to add my voice to the conversation without coming off the way I feel, which is angry and hopeless and yeah. frustrated. I agree. It's tough. Like, I want to yeah. be able to express all of that, but not come off. Well, I think you mentioned it could not come off like I'm attacking someone's beliefs because if you attack somebody's beliefs, they're just going to dig in and you can present them with every fact out there in the world and incontrovertible proof that you know, it, what they believe in isn't wrong and they're just going to dig in their heels deeper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the common ground is, is the the best place to start because, you know, there are certain things that everyone agrees on, mm-hmm. you know, children shouldn't be shot at school. We can all yes. agree on that. Yes. We, we probably all disagree on the means to get to that. Yes. Um, but that is a goal that we can all share. And so, you know, you can't say I'm against kids being shot in school and anyone point a finger at you and say, no, you're wrong. Like everyone wants that to be true. I don't know. Tucker Carlson's <laughs> doing a pretty good job of that. Oh no. But, um, I don't know. I, I think if we, if we talk to each other and we listen to each other and we try to find out what we do have in common and what we can agree on, then, then we can yeah, move forward. Gotcha. So, so not, not to end on the political note of stuff. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious. I didn't know I'm going to be a pundit today. I'm, <laughs> I wasn't planning on going there when we started talking. Um, I, I want, I want to get back into, you know, some of your side projects and things like that. And I want to talk about block printing. So okay. we're, we're talking before Creative South. You're going to be teaching a workshop workshop at creative south that i'm sure went awesome 
and you know <laughs> yeah it was a big success yes. everybody loved it nobody nobody, nobody stabbed themselves in the hand or cut there their fingers there will be no stabbing band-aids yeah. will not be needed it is a no blood workshop nope. um i'm bringing the band-aids but you better not need them yes so how did how did you get into block printing how did that pique your interest so a lot of that came during that sort of magical mystifying time of graduate school where the thing about grad school is you have all this time, mm-hmm. but you also have no time. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's really weird. So I had, um, you know, I only had to go to campus three days a week mm-hmm. and it's a 20 mile drive. I'm not going to campus if there's not a reason to be on campus, you know? Sure. So, so I was able to weave in a lot of the, the kind of handmade art that I wanted to be doing. I spent a lot of time screen printing, um, and I, I got to play with a lot of the things that I wish that I always had time to play with. And one of the things was block printing, which mm. I was always very intimidated by. It looked really complicated. You know, you get to design it backwards and, you know, it just, it seemed, it seemed difficult. And I, I don't know why I really put that, you know, invisible boundary around it. Like it was something that was too hard for me, mm-hmm. but, um, I bought myself a little $20 speedball kit and said, I'm going to learn this, damn it. And, um, and I had a lot of fun with it. And I thought, gosh, this, this is not that bad. You know, there's, there's a lot of finesse to it. You know, you have to kind of learn its, uh, its characteristics and its strengths and weaknesses, which is what, what I spoke so, so eloquently about at creative South in the past. (laughs) Um, but, uh, yeah, it's so much fun. And, and especially, you know, my day job is designing websites Sure. and that has to be so precise. And, you know, we're working with colleges and universities. There's strict color palettes we have to follow and rules about typography and accessibility and just all this stuff that's very, very, very technical. Mm-hmm. And to then sit down with, with just a piece of rubber or linoleum, whatever you're working with and, make a mark on it that you immediately know how it's going to translate to make a print. There is something so simple and so gratifying in that. And the fact that you can do it all at your house without any special equipment. Um, and that it's an art form that's been around for millennia. I mean, I love it. I love it a lot. I haven't, I haven't done much in the wood cutting mm-hmm. that, that is hard, but, um, but I love the linoleum prints. I've started to do some two color prints, which is, we talked about, um, you know, me taking on too much the first time I try anything. Sure. Yeah. The first, I think the first block print I made was a nine by 12 inch two color print. And I, um, I cut away almost everything. Like if you look at the linoleum, it's, it's all shaved off except like a few bumps. And I looked at it and I thought this would have made a way better screen print. Okay. So, you know, I invite people to come to creative South and learn from my mistakes. (laughs) 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 Um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And, and, um, I think one of the things I've had to overcome in block printing is sort of getting away from the very, structured requirements of graphic design Mm -hmm. because I look at some of the earlier prints that I did and like all the lines are the same weight and they're all equidistant apart. 
and everything's on like a 90 degree and 45 degree angle. And cause you know, I'm designing it, you know, it's gotta be so. And then I look at, you know, people, people whose work I really admire and theirs is so textural and so flowing and has so much, uh, difference in contrast and all that. So that's, that's what I've been working on over the past year is trying to get a little bit more, um, detail and information and the stuff that I do and make it look a little less like, you know, an illustrator drawing that you just traced and cut out because I can be that precise, but I don't want to be, you know? Sure. Yeah. So So. do do you find now that it's, it's kind of the counterpoint to what you do as a day job where it's, it allows you to move away from the, the sterile environment of being on the computer and doing this highly structured, highly controlled design for websites to working on something that's more tangible. But you, 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 you've got to know the limitations of the material and work within those and, and be willing to live with mistakes that were made and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an entirely different way of thinking. It's entirely different way of planning ahead. And, um, it's, uh, you know, you're getting your hands dirty. You're, you're working with real tangible materials that you can immediately see the effects of what you're doing to it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is, that is a nice break, you know, after working with grids and pixels and hex colors all day. (laughs) Yeah. Gotcha. And I want to I want to wrap up real quickly and and tell me a little bit about your role in AIGA and how you got involved with it. Yeah, so um, everybody's best friend Lenny Terenzi um, <laughs> was one of my first AIGA friends. I got I got involved in AIGA about the same time. I was pretty sure I needed to leave my first job. Mm-hmm. Um, I was feeling kind of burned out, felt like I didn't really have much of a creative support network. And, uh, and so I thought, okay, you know, I was into AIGA in college. I'm sure they're still around. Let's, let's see what they've got going on. So, um, I, uh, I started going to AIGA and I wrote a blog post for my work on an event that they had at AIGA mm-hmm. and, uh, and Amy Lyons, saw it and asked me if I, uh, if they could publish it in their blog. And I said, sure. And then I felt like, Oh my gosh, I'm being asked to be published on the AIGA blog. Um, so that was very flattering to immediately be kind of reached out to as, Hey, we like your voice. Let's, let's bring you in. Um, and then Lenny at the time was a, um, was the director of uniting people. That was his role (laughs) in the chapter. Sounds perfect for him now. Right. Um, so he was that smiling face that was always excited to see me and remembered my name and, mm. and, you know, just made me glad that I came because I walked in and immediately someone like was expecting me and was excited to see me. Um, and so, uh, I, I worked a little bit on the content team after that was working on the blog. Um, and then I was on the community board. I helped, mm. uh, do some by hand programming. So, um, hand lettering and, illustration and, and, um, that kind of thing. And, uh, and now I am at the end of my first term as the director of design empowerment. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm in charge of the, um, 
you know, under the creating a place where design thrives is our chapter mission. Sure. Um, but the part of that that I'm into is the, the empowerment of designers. So how to make you a better designer, how to give you the tools to, um, to do your taxes as a designer, or to, <laughs> um, you know, how to network and how to, it's not just the functional part of being a designer, but how to, how to, you know, run a business as a designer and, and how to keep your, keep your sort of cerebral balance as a designer and all that. So, um, that's been a lot of fun and, and it, it's, it's given me, you know, it, it takes a lot. It's a volunteer organization. It mm-hmm. takes up a lot of our time. I know you're heavily involved in your chapter as well. So uh-huh. you know what I'm talking yeah. about, but, um, but it is one of the most fulfilling things I've ever been a part of. And, um, and they're my family and I'm incredibly grateful to have found them and, uh, to, to be able to give back to the community that has just done nothing but give to me for, what, five years now. So, um, yeah, AIGA, that's where it's at. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I I call it design church. Design church. Like, yeah. Gotcha. So since we're, we're kind of getting close to our time here, what do you, what exciting do you have coming up? Um, aside from events that will have happened in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Uh, well, that's funny because one of the biggest things we're, we're going to have to pretend it was in the past, right? Uh, yeah. so creative South, of course, really looking forward to seeing you, my friend. Same. Um, so that's coming up. I'm, uh, I'm wrapping up a project for my alma mater, NC state. Um, they actually came to me because they were excited to see the block prints that I've been doing in my Instagram, which mm. was kind of exciting to, to actually get some, uh, some freelance work from that. Um, so I'm designing a little, uh, like a pocket notebook field notes style thing for them with, um, well, hand-drawn lettering graphic. I'll be prop That's going to be done here in about a week or so. So I'll be posting some pictures of that. Um, I've had a couple of people reach out to do large scale murals, which I've done. I got to do one at my company a couple of years ago, which mm. I get to look at every morning, which is exciting. Um, so big typography murals. Um, and then, uh, I'm going to be speaking at my first conference in June, which I'm a little, you know, a little nervous about that, but uh, <laughs> excited about it. I'm going to be talking about my, about the hundred days project, the, the thesis project that I did and, and how that, um, can kind of help technical people. UX designers to sort of connect back to the materiality of working with analog tools and how that can make your work better. So yeah, it's going to be a busy several months, but uh, Sounds like good. it. Yeah. Sounds like it. Well, where can people find you online? Well, if you can figure out how to spell my name, uh, then you can find Oh, me we didn't even talk about there. this. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Lydia Kikis is where you can find me. And that is, L-Y-D-I-A-K-U-E-K-E-S. Um, that is where I am on all the social media. So at Lydia Kikis everywhere. Can you believe that wasn't taken? <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm easy to find if you can spell my name. Awesome. Lydia, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Well, me too. It was really great to see you and, and finally do this. So yeah. yeah. All right. Go out and hug some necks. 
Yes, man. You too. <laughs> All right. <laughs> You can find out more about Lydia on Twitter at Lydia Kikis. And be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with her. You can keep up with the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Creative SO Pod. And follow Creative South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative South GA over at CreativeSouth.com. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, and Instagram. Jack Prince is giving Creative South podcast listeners 15% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code SOUTH15OFF at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. For a limited time, new Skillshare customers can get their first three months for just 99 cents to get unlimited access to thousands of classes when you sign up at Skillshare.com using promo code CREATIVESOUTH. What are you waiting for? Start learning today. And... Remember, if you like the show, help support us over at patreon.com slash creative south. And if you like the Creative South podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. Rate us and leave a review. This helps more people find the podcast and allows us to keep getting awesome guests. Now go out and hug some necks.